Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. And this is something we're calling Serious Film People, a podcast about film stuff, I guess, and, and movies nominated for Best Picture, specifically. Ken, what does the term serious film person mean to you? I'll be honest, there's a bit of, I guess, sarcasm or self-deprecation involved in the term. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're mocking ourselves, but at the same time uh, trying to get across from the get-go that we do uh, really, really love film. We take things seriously, not just... Uh... We've seen Barry Lyndon. How about that? <laughs> that's, that's a good place to start, I guess. TJ, what's the term serious film person mean to you? And do you consider the three of us serious film people? Uh, agreeing with Ken, I think a lot of it has done an irony. Basically, we all just kind of came together around pandemic times because we needed someone with whom to talk about film instead of continuing to torture and bore to death uh, family and loved ones. And Correct. Yes. yes. So, you know, who do you want to talk to for an hour and a half about, like, Spike Lee's school days? Call up Ken and Josh. <laughs> yeah, so it kind of grew out of that. And then sharing our our love and passion and often lovely passionate disagreement with one another that we 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 hope that our conversations are at least adequate and going further <laughs> that's our promise here is, is an adequate conversation yes. adequate yeah um, we, we're gonna that's what we're building that's what we're promising yeah. from the start serious film people are the people that are at parties that once they talk you wish they weren't there <laughs> so please join us i don't claim to be that person because that that would imply i go to parties uh. um <laughs> i think that i'll claim to be the first person among the three of us to use the term and i used it in the context of we we're discussing some movie over the pandemic and i was talking about like what people online think of the movie and i don't remember what the movie is now but i was talking about like the online reaction to it and, like, I separated, like, normal people and, quote-unquote, serious film people in the reaction to the movie. And I think I just started using the term in that in that sense. And then I think TJ, you kind of ran with it and started calling us serious film people, mostly sarcastically. Yeah. It's like, if you looked forward to the dropping of the new sight and sound list, you might be a serious film person. Yes. Indeed, if you, which I was. If you don't know when the Oscars are, you might not be a serious film. Or maybe you will. Maybe you've transcended. But There's a horseshoe theory going around with the Oscars and serious film people, I think. Yeah, they're, they're, you can come out the other side, Yeah, I think. But needless to say, all are welcome to listen. And uh, we certainly, we are, we are fans, we are interested, we are uh, reflective and, and analytical in our takes, but we are not by any means experts who will tell you how to think we just love talking about film and hearing ourselves talk about film what do you think the serious film person relationship is to barry linden the serious film person relationship to barry linden i think probably is hey film bros who love stanley kubrick you think that all of these other movies are sweet but actually barry linden is his uh mm. disregarded forgotten masterpiece i'd imagine that's what serious film people would probably say I think they're probably you're onto something that I think like the, the other Kubrick movies are like in the canon, like or at least you know they're more essential to the canon, whether it be 2001 or Clockwork Orange or you know even The Shining and Strange Love and stuff. But mm -hmm. I think that Barry Lyndon's more uh, a B side Kubrick, if if such a thing could exist. What do you think, Ken? I think it's the it's one of the ones that are that's certainly least talked about. Everyone talks mm -hmm. about Doctor Strange Love. Everyone talks about 
uh, Clockwork Orange, even Full Metal Jacket to some degree, depending on yeah. who you are. And of course, everyone talks like about me, 2001. Yes. Yeah. And of course, everyone talks about 2001. I think Barry Lyndon falls into that space where everyone's aware of it, but I'm not sure that a, a huge percentage of the population has even seen it of various ages. I mean, it, it didn't do that spectacularly at the box office when it came out. It did not. So, you know, it, given when it came out, it didn't necessarily get a huge draw, and over time, it's just those who seek it out. I think, to some degree, yeah, there is kind of this afterthought. People come to the conclusion that, wow, this was this was uh, one that people don't talk often enough about. Granted, we'll get into whether or not we think they're maybe thinking a little highly of uh, because of Kubrick and his reputation, or whether or not it's actually because they feel that way about the film. But yeah, I certainly think that there is something to be said for the fact that this film is not regularly the one of the first like five films that are discussed when talking about Kubrick, usually. Yeah, we have a, uh, or we're going to have what I'm going to call a populist, Josh's populist corner on this podcast. Uh, and there's not really much of a populist corner to be had on Barry Lyndon, I feel like. I, I did a cursory search on just Twitter for Barry Lyndon to just see what, what the conversation, if any, was. And it was mostly just like, there was a prompt a few weeks ago about like, which movie would you like to see on the big screen? And like, everyone just said Barry Lyndon. And like, Okay, so it's a movie people want to see on the big screen, and that's about the extent of the conversation on Twitter, at least. On Letterboxd, it's pretty popular. Uh, it's it's very highly rated on Letterboxd, but Letterboxd is more, to use our half-sarcastic term, more serious film people on Letterboxd than on, like, IMDb and that kind of stuff. It's in the Letterboxd Top 250. I think it's, like, got an average rating of, like, 4.2 out of 5, which is extremely that's high. That's good, yeah. But I wonder how much of that, like you kind of just alluded, is, like, just kind of latent Kubrick love getting extended to... I'm not saying movie doesn't deserve it, because it is, it is an interesting movie, I think. It's also, I think, a nearly impenetrable film in a lot of ways, and it's a film that is about contradictions, namely the contradiction of pretension. Uncomfortably, it's a movie that could be read as incredibly pretentious, or it could be read as kind of a lampoon of pretension, but I think then within the reception, there's also a, well, if I'm a serious film person, I have to like Barry <laughs> Lyndon, right? You know, I, th I, I think if, if you are someone who, like, tries to seek out classic movies, things regarded as masterpieces, I don't know about you guys, but I sometimes will watch a movie and... If it doesn't live up to what I've heard the hyper reputation of it is, even after like one screening, I am less likely to be like, everyone is wrong, that movie sucks, and more likely to be like, oh shit, I'm not, maybe I'm not a serious film person, I didn't understand yeah. this movie. And so I wonder, and this is really like putting words in a lot of other people's mouths, but I wonder how much of the like and appreciation of it is a little bit of pretense. I, let me just say I've never read or heard anyone actually speak passionately about Barry Lyndon. I knew one person when I lived I? in Canada who was Can't like, say. oh, but but Barry Lyndon's really one of Kubrick's best. And I'm like, what? No, like what's good about Barry Lyndon? And they basically just went to like, you know, they use natural lighting. And did you know? Like those sorts of things. And I'm like, That's okay. like the only thing I heard about this movie before watching it was the natural lighting thing. That's yeah. Like the only thing right. The candles. Yeah. It's all the candles. Yeah, but I never, I've never really heard anybody talk about it the way they talk about, for example, The Shining, right? And yes. that's not to say that it's necessarily better or worse than The Shining, but where are my uh, people who stand for Barry Lyndon, you know? Where are the Barry Lyndon heads at? Mm -hmm. So we have a few topics that I, that I want to hit, that you want to hit, that Ken wants to hit. But before that, can I go like a very brief background of the movie? Is that cool with you guys? Yeah. Hit it. So Stanley Kubrick wanted to make a Napoleon movie after 2001 Space Odyssey, but... The movie Waterloo came out in 1970 and apparently sucked and didn't make any money, so Warner Brothers got nervous and 
pulled Kubrick's funding for his Napoleon movie because you, you could say sucked. that movie did to his Napoleon what the real Waterloo did to the real Napoleon. You could say that. You are saying that. It sounds like you could say that. Yes. The audience is is going nuts with laughter right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he Kubrick instead made a Clockwork Orange because his funding was he lost his Napoleon funding, but then after Clockwork Orange he came back to the idea of doing like a you know 18th century military European epic basically which is what his napoleon idea was originally going to be so he instead went to this uh who wrote the novel tj william thacker thackery thackery yep yep okay mm-hmm. yeah so it went to this this dude's novel called barry linden or was it called barry linden or was it called something else yeah it's novel. barry linden uh-huh um actually do you want the whole title yeah give it to me <clears throat> the memoirs of barry linden esquire of the kingdom of ireland containing an account of his extraordinary adventures, misfortunes, his sufferings in the service of his late Prussian majesty, his visits to many of the courts of Europe, his marriage and splendid establishments in England and Ireland, and the many cruel persecutions, conspiracies, and slanders of which he has been a victim. That's 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 a horrible, horrible title. Not surprisingly, all of that. it was reissued a few years later as The Memoirs of Barry Lyndon, etc. Etc. <laughs> You have to, we have to understand just like historically it was published as a serial. And so even the version I have now and, the, and I'm holding it up as the people can see. And the version that you, if you wanted to read it is extremely condensed as well because you mm-hmm. were paid basically by the word at that time. So it was in your interest to just keep going on and on and on. Also though, I think, and I'll get into this later, sorry to cut you off already, but there is a lot of like tongue in cheek rascalness in that title that, that pervades the novel. Well, there's some rascalness in the movie, too, that uh, I'd love to get into. He's a little stinker, is my point. He's a, he's, he's a, bitter, a bigger stinker in the book. He's a pretty big stinker in the movie, too. I'm just going to throw this out there because we can discuss. I'm not sure that it comes through in the film as much because Kubrick is obviously not that great. But I've discovered upon some research into the book that the author did not have the fondest of opinions regarding the Irish. And no, that, not. that that really, really comes through in the book. We can discuss once we talk more about the film. I'm not sure that that comes through because, of course, Kubrick doesn't have the same prejudices as Thackeray. But uh, early 19th century pretension definitely requires that the Irish be put down. Per the uh, essay in the Companion Criterion booklet with the Criterion Blu-ray, apparently Thackeray once referred to the once referred to Ireland as a nation of liars. And yeah, that was his opinion of, of the Irish. But... And again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. He works with that in a complicated way because the novel is a pretty deeply satirical. He, he worked in parody early on. And then his most famous novel is, is Vanity Fair. And with Barry Lyndon was returning to a sort of picaresque satire. So I don't know how much... I mean, British, all British people in the past hated the Irish, you know? But I don't know how much of this is... A satirical performance and how much of it is actual on its face bigotry but again that's for well his main character is an irishman who is a little stinker who just stinkers his way through multiple countries armies mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. stinkers his way into aristocracy which is cool but before we get to that real quick uh the movie shot for 300 days over the course of a year and they actually shot largely in ireland during the height of the troubles and apparently stanley kubrick like had to flee the country at one point because he got a threatening phone call that no one's really sure whether to take seriously but he took it seriously enough that he left the country he apparently thought he was a mark for kidnapping by the ira during the troubles and i I mentioned they're shot over 300 days because this is as we kind of alluded it's famous for its production value and production design i guess and the cinematography and the costumes and the buildings and the old uh european mansions they shot in etc and it 
only made as TJ kind of alluded, it wasn't much of a hit. It only made twenty million at the box office against a budget of twelve million. Uh, twelve million dollars in nineteen seventy four is basically eighty million dollars today. So I can't imagine anyone spending eighty million dollars on a stuffy costume piece like like this is. But maybe I'm wrong. Uh, it was nominated for seven Oscars and it won four. And this was interesting to me. Stanley Kubrick famously only won one Oscar in his life, and it was for the special effects on two thousand one. Barry Lyndon was nominated for seven Oscars, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Best Costume, Best Cinematography, and Best Score. And the four, the three that Stanley Kubrick was personally nominated for, Picture, Director, Screenplay, it did not win, and it won the other four. So it, basically it won every Oscar that Stanley Kubrick was not personally nominated for. So it, He got doomed. It did get doomed, yeah. At least he got nominated for Best Director, yeah. I guess I guess that just tells us the voters actually did, in fact, watch the movie. <laughs> I guess so. Let's see, who who won Best Director in 75? Milos Forman. Milos, Milos Forman, that's right. This was one of those uh, one of those rare, with only three times in history, where one film has taken all of the top awards, all of the big five. Did Milos also win for Amadeus nine years later? Yes, he did, I believe. I mean, that, won, that movie won eight Oscars off the top of my head, so I'm assuming one of those was director. So... TJ kind of alluded this movie's kind of boring, but uh, but before I let TJ rant about its boringness, I, I think that the more generous way to say it is the movie is an exercise in formalism and an exercise in design, more so than an exercise in narrative, because it does have, you know, the period costumes we talked about uh, and the uh, natural lighting, very famously shot using, like, cameras developed by NASA to be able to capture the light from, like, a candlelit room. And that kind of stuff. So it is certainly pushing the envelope in terms of the technical stuff, but maybe not in terms of the storytelling and the narrative. Well, I have to give it a little bit of credit of like when I saw it in 2012-ish, it was one of those like, did I accidentally put this on 0.5 speed? Like it was, I, 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 was, <laughs> I was struggling. Uh, this time I struggled less with it. Maybe for the purpose of... You know, I was taking notes for this conversation. Maybe also just, uh, I had seen it already, so I kind of knew where it was going. But... I'm interested in boring stuff. I've written a lot about boredom in other films that I like a whole lot better and in literature. And one of the things, like, I, I put this on the outline, <laughs> it's bory, Linden, and not in a good way. Here's the difference I'm trying to make, is, like, there is a movement of cinema called slow cinema that this somewhat, like, predates and participates in, but slow cinema is a lot more about the mesmerism of contemplation and when that aesthetic is applied to this movie that's about uh, pretension, that's about surfaces, that's about the reproduction of aesthetics, it, I, I don't think it has that same sort of gratifying and interesting effect of the boredom and of the slowness. It, to me, it just kind of reveals what I said was an intellectual vacuousness in the movie. I, if I can continue to riff just a little bit on this. Um, yeah. I read a piece by Eliza Pesota. Pesata. I'm sorry, Eliza. It's called Slowness and Time Expansion in Long Takes. Okay, and she looks at 2001 A Space Odyssey, Barry Lyndon, and Eyes Wide Shut. And what's funny is the way this was printed, they called it 2001 A Spacey Odyssey. I wonder if that's meant on purpose. She's talking about slowness in here and the use of, of long takes and whatnot in Kubrick's work. So I'm just going to quote a little bit. She says that elements of slowness, it's the presence of numerous long takes characterized by few dialogue or silence, by rare and slow movements of the camera that often do not follow the staged events, and that show in long shots the lengthy movements and characters and objects. Thus, sequential narrative form is usually replaced by an associative one. So we all watch together uh, Vitalina Varela. We did. Okay. Yes. 
That would that that oh my so god. That was yes. Um, I'd rather be waterboarded than watch that movie again. That that's was true, mesmerizing and contemplative. You're right. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, borrowing from uh, David Bordwell, she's referring to uh, a long take being at least 25 seconds long. Now, that's arguable, but for the sake of what, what she's going to talk about later, you need to do 25 seconds long, okay? And thus, there's a durational complexity that brings out a disparity between screen duration and the viewer's perception of screen duration, Okay. The, the passionate contemplation was Andre Bazin. So if we look at Barry Lyndon, 12% of Barry Lyndon is long takes. 12% of Barry Lyndon is long takes. That's the same percentage as 2001. And 69% of those long takes, the camera is static or either zooms in and out. And in 40 of them, the characters in the frame do not move too. When the camera or the characters move, they usually do it slowly. As a result... And this is obviously intentional. Uh, A lot of the time you seem to be just viewing a flattened tableau, uh, Mm -hmm. really kind of just looking at pictures in an art gallery in a lot of ways. Um, And thus, you could argue it's not, in a sense, a movie. The pictures don't really move. I'm not going to go on record and say Barry Lyndon's not a movie, but like the pictures don't move. They're virtual photographs, in a sense. And she goes on further here that zooms are actually fake movement. They're the illusion of movement. The camera does not move, but the camera then creates this flattening or extension of an image that is impossible for the viewer's eye to do. So if you want to pan, if you want to scan, all of that you can do with your head, right? There's there's an analogous movement within human ocular perception. There isn't for zooming in and zooming out, right? right? So then there becomes a sort of a flatness that oppresses the experience of time there. And that's that's some things that I read and borrowed from Eliza here um, in her essay that I thought was a very useful way of getting into the aesthetics of the boredom in the film and how, I, I, I we'll get into this later, but I can see it talking to some of the themes of the movie, but I also, like I said, I think it just leaves a, a pretty large emptiness there that a lot of other pieces of slow cinema, Satan Tango, for example, uh, might inspire the passionate contemplation. Well, you mentioned something, or Eliza mentioned something that you see a lot in the movie, and that's something you see a lot in Kubrick's work, is it begins on a close-up, and then it slowly, 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 slowly zooms out to a wide, like an ultra-wide shot, and nothing is moved in the frame, just more of the frame is slowly exposed as it slowly zooms out. I think... A Clockwork Orange, the opening shot of A Clockwork Orange does the same thing, right? Except that's not just that's not just a zoom out, that's also a dolly back, but, you know, there's not a lot going on in these shots, though. It's just, like, shows you a close-up and then zooms out to a very regal... I mean, it's a beautiful image, but it's, you know... It's derivative, also, because he's intentionally he's intentionally recreating these scenes to look somewhat... The, the painter, everyone knows he's, he's inspired by is Hogarth, William Hogarth, who was actually doing paintings in the 18th century, and... Thackeray himself would have been familiar with his paintings, one of which is hanging in the National Gallery in London. It's called Marriage a la Mode. The purpose of the painting is to mock the aristocracy and the marriage for money concept. And it's that design, that concept, that Thackeray is kind of utilizing when he's writing. That's what he's thinking about. He's familiar with Hogarth's work. And obviously that's inspiring a lot of this movie. But it's derivative in the sense that he's doing what already exists. He's taking effectively still images, just in some cases zooming in and out. But when you're not having the the, the characters, the actors, 
participants moving at all. You're just recreating the paintings. And I'm not sure that he's doing it to the same effect that the actual paintings would have been doing when they were first created. So it kind of brings down the whole film. He's just putting up what you can already see in the National Gallery in London. TJ, what do you want to say about the realist aesthetic in this movie? The realism. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to just go back real quickly to like the flatness of the tableaus. Um, the zoom outward in being a, a, a false movement complicates this idea that in zooming out, you're revealing off-screen space. And usually with the with, with the movement of a camera, there's a narrative suggestion that we're about to reveal more information to you that you should direct your attention to. But all that it ends up doing really in this case is casting the like foci of the picture into less concentrated focus, if that makes sense. It gives you more visual information that is perhaps not essential uh, rather mm-hmm. than just a setting. So it, where I was going with that like realist aesthetic business is there's a whole lot to be made. And again, we, we went back to this with like, anytime you talk to somebody, they're like, did you know they used candles? Did you know they used like costumes that were actually there at the time? Did you know that, you know, cool. Uh, this is an issue I had with the discourse around Lincoln, for example, which is like, that seems to be just this thing that you can like read on IMDb and be like, oh my gosh, like, look how hard they worked. And so I think mm-hmm. a part of the appreciation that goes into this movie is like the 300 day shoot and oh my gosh they worked so hard to get it right which i'm not saying that's easy and that's something that should be um just kind of blown off but what 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 is it really getting us um because realism itself is an aesthetic right for whatever reason we decide that it's an aesthetic that is is expected and thus like better or higher you know oh that's what it actually especially from historical narratives that's what it actually looked like right in lincoln he actually they actually had the sound of lincoln's watch on there i I just want to question like why do we think that that makes a historical narrative better than if he didn't if kubrick didn't actually use real costumes from the time would you guys have been able to tell if they were all fake i wouldn't well i think i I don't mind that he worked that hard to get it historically accurate. I don't mind when a film does that. In fact, I think that can in some some degree heighten the film or elevate it, but not in not in a vacuum. The problem with this film and your criticism potentially of Lincoln is that in and of itself, that historical accuracy, that 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 commitment to getting every little detail correct is not in and of itself what makes the film good or not. Everything else has to come together too. And so when everyone talks consistently about the fact that look at the costumes, look at the candle lighting, look at the beauty of these these individual shots with the landscape in the background, all these long shots, that in and of itself does not make for a good film. It makes for a good shot, something you could potentially hang up on your wall, but then again, what's the difference between that and a painting? Cinema is supposed to be doing something slightly different because it's a different medium. Let me offer a point of comparison. Uh, last night I watched Master and Commander, which is a movie that takes place within 50 years of this movie taking place, also in Europe, also involving British armed forces. That movie rules. That movie's so entertaining. And it, you know, it has period costumes. It has period military artillery. It has period ships. I don't know if they're accurate. I don't give a shit, though. It's, 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 it's fun. And, you know, there's a story there. Well, let me push on this, though. You're, the difference you're making is you find one entertaining and the other perhaps not. Ken, if, if that's—and I'm not saying I necessarily disagree with you, but if the 
aesthetic production of the cinema is not what makes a good movie or a great movie. What is? I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm saying it doesn't necessarily by itself. There are so many aspects. Like ideally, you've got a film that is both entertaining its audience and provoking the audience. And if it's it's if it's a historical piece or it's attempting to recreate a certain time, a place, a moment. Hey, if they did the extra work to get the technical aspects of it as correct as they possibly could, as accurate as they possibly could, all, all the more power to them. The problem is when that seems to be well, only one element seems to be the focus or the drive of the production. And in this case, so much of the motivation behind this film appears to be the aesthetics. It, it almost feels like, as, as Josh was saying earlier, Kubrick came into this with all of this information, all of this research, and, well, I've got to put it to something. I don't want to waste all of this time and effort, so here we go. And you just put together a film around everything you researched. And that's kind of been keeping, in a lot of ways, with one way to read Kubrick's filmography is, like, there's a way to look at almost each movie as, like, the, this is the Steadicam movie. This is the visual effects in space movie. You know, not to say that that's like the only thing that it's about, but kind of like, ooh, I want to try this now and I'm going to like try the shit out of it in this movie. And so this is like the art direction movie. Um. <laughs> well, let, let, we, we've talked enough about how boring it is or isn't. Let's talk about like what the story actually is, the, the narrative. You know, it's, it's a movie about this guy, Barry Lyndon, and it's, it's a two halves movie, much like a lot of our favorites. You know, it's a rise and a fall. Uh, on the uh, Criterion Blu-ray, one of the his- film historians compared it to like basically retelling a Clockwork Orange, which is also a rise and a demise to have story, uh, much like Goodfellas, much like Boogie Nights. I mean, that's kind of the classic structure of a tragic hero from Greek drama. So I don't know that it's, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> rising action, falling action, climax in the middle. I mean, is Barry a sympathetic character? I don't find him to be. I say that, I say that quickly and I realize that it appears there's no thought into that, but he's just not. And part of that might be also Ryan O'Neill. God forbid he should hear this, but he's an incredibly uncharismatic actor. There's not a whole lot going on in there. And I'm convinced that Kubrick chose him on purpose, knowing that he wants this kind of detached performance. Well, he doesn't really even attempt an Irish accent. Like, did you guys forget he's Irish? Um, But but also, um, yeah. um, But also, uh, I, I think it underscores what I was saying earlier about it being kind of about pretense is that it's a pretty bland performance. It, he, he cast Ryan O'Neill was like the second biggest box office draw at the time. Like he was what? Five years after love, love story. story. Was this the year after paper moon? Paper moon. Exactly. Paper moon? Two years after. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it was like, you know, casting the it guy. And I think there's an interesting sort of contradiction or, or, or tension at work between his fame and his ability, which is kind of what is Barry Lyndon's issue, right? To quote Top Gun, you're literally writing checks your body can't cash. Like, that's kind of the story of Barry Lyndon. So I I think there's maybe a little bit of, like, kind of sardonic humor in casting Ryan O'Neill there. But, Josh, I want to question your question. Why does that matter? If he's sympathetic or not? If he's sympathetic. I'm not sure it does necessarily. Uh, my answer to the question is he is until he isn't. He is in the first half to an extent. He's not in the second half. What's interesting to me, and this was pointed out to me more on the 
in the behind the scenes stuff on the Blu-ray, but Kubrick is normally more interested in, in his sympathies usually lie with the underdog and he usually satirizes the person in power, whether it be the generals and the politicians in strange love, the generals in passive glory, John Quinn in this movie. And then in the second half of this movie, Barry Lyndon kind of becomes the subject of derision. And he's like, who were he's, the narrative point of view kind of shifts in the second half of the movie where it's like you're, Barry Lyndon's in, in every single scene in the first part. And then the second part, we follow Lord Bolingdon or we follow Lady Lyndon. We follow other characters who aren't Barry. And Barry's more reactive and kind of no longer sympathetic in any, in any sense because he's kind of just – he's a dick, but at least he's an underdog dick in the first part. And then he's just a dick with power in the second part. Well, who yeah. do you think is, is in control of the narrative point of view? Is it – the director, the camera, the narrator, who do you think is in control of it? All of the above, I guess? What do you mean? Well, I think those three interests are kind of at odds with one another um, in the movie. How so? It's, it, I think it's hard to tell, if, you know, if we want to talk about, like, Kubrick as a storyteller where his allegiances lie because there's the layer of narration and there's a visual aesthetic that is not consistent across the rest of his filmography so i just think there's like different layers on there that make it very difficult to talk about uh shifts in narrative point of view because really then i mean uh, the movie at least presents itself as narratively from the point of view of a narrator um and that's that does stay consistent across the two halves right but i guess like if we start in the room with lord bullingdon and brian and like see brian annoy lord bullingdon to the point that Lord Bullington takes Brian over his knee and starts spanking him. And then Barry enters the scene late and only sees his son being beaten by a stepson. Mm-hmm. Our point of view is not Barry's point of view at that point. Because we saw the lead up. We saw how annoying Brian was being. Like, I'm not saying Lord Bullington's our point of view character there. But, like, more so than Barry. Well, this is my point. Uh, none of the characters on the screen are the point of view character. I think, narratively speaking, Lord Bullington's the point of view character in that scene. Certainly more so than Barry, because Barry walks in with a different amount of information than us and reacts in a way that, had he had our point of view, would maybe be different. But uh, isn't the narrator always the point of view character in this film? Well, I think to your point, Josh, I think it, it it's constantly shifting, right? Like, I mean, the film the film actually opens onto a scene with no character we see subsequent to it. Like, the first couple of shots in this film do not have Barry Lyndon they don't have any of the characters we will subsequently follow throughout the movie. Um, we just get the narrator. He's the only person, the only character, if you will, that we get from the very beginning all the way through to the end. I'm not sure to what extent, though, I, I, I agree with you, TJ, that there's necessarily a, a conflict between that role, that, that position that, that the narrator holds, and, let's say, Kubrick. Because isn't the narrator, to some degree, filling that role for us? Filling what role for us? He is, he's, he's basically, he is Kubrick's representative for the viewing audience. I don't think so. How do you view the narrator, TJ? Well, the narrator, I think, is another layer of, like, authorial presence that is, is itself a character, is itself a construct from uh, the creator of the film or the creator of the screenplay or the creator of the novel. Something that is within... Uh, the work itself, but without, outside of the story that's being told. If you consider the novel, for example, the novel doesn't have the narrator character. The novel as it exists now is told in first person. Uh, the novel as it existed in serial form had an editor. 
um, that, that would kind of intervene and say like, whoa, 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 Barry says this, but that's not true, right? And thus, what's, what's interesting is a lot of the novel, the lines from the novel that were from Barry's point of view as a storyteller, some of them come into the narrator's lines and then other things are complete inventions of it. So are you suggesting that the narrator is, is Kubrick's perceived or invented uh, kind of representation or of Thackeray, maybe? Maybe it's the author of the work being I like that. intruded, being, being input into the film? No, I don't think it's Thackeray. I think it's just a, the kind of replacement way of the way that the novel had an editor, a, a fake editor character that was framing the narrative. And I think that's what the narrator is doing. Let me, let me read this directly from the booklet inside the Criterion Blu-ray. I'm quoting now. Michael Hordern, whom we will hear as intermittent narrator throughout the film. He is a character as much as anyone. He certainly has more to say than most of them, but is not otherwise identified. He is simply the one who knows what is coming, the historian who understands the world in which these things occur, the ironist who perhaps comprehends the sense of it all. He mentions the death of Barry's father, and as we try to figure out which of the duelists he is, the question is answered as the one on the left falls dead, just as the narrator informs us with dry solemnity that the duel was fought over disagreement over purchase of horses. Uh, da 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 Instead of a title card, we have Horn's irresistibly mellow voice characterizing uh, Barry's mother's motives and behavior. The voice assures us that we will not have to work too hard to make sense of what goes on. The narrator will explain everything, even before it happens. We are being given a guided tour of something that is already done with. So the Criterion book kind of identifies the narrator as like a historian of some kind. And he even like alludes as such in, in the second half when he like references how Barry Lyndon's life ended is like, we don't have much record of it. Like, you know, historians disagree on this, that or the other. So it, it, it does sound like it is like a historian of something kind of, and maybe that leans into the historical aspect of the movie. Well, it, it's complicated in the sense like, no, Ken, do you want to tell me what you or tell us that, the thing that you found most infuriating that the narrator said. Oh, well, yeah, there's a there's a point about midway through the film to which we get Barry Lyndon, his first introduction or meeting with, uh, with Lady Lyndon, really. Uh, I'm going to say this is an hour and 38 minutes into the film. There's still an hour and 27 minutes of the film to go. And the narrator says, to make a long story short, <laughs> I paused the film at that point and screamed at the television because it is the only time and it's almost it's almost like the narrator is just goading us uh almost as this is this is why tj and you can disagree and i can i think i understand or give i I think i understand where you're disagreeing but i felt like this was kubrick on purpose trying to introduce some humor we're we're going to speed through an afternoon effectively or a few days that's what the narrator is cutting short for us so that we don't have to follow him courting her or the two of them actually falling for one another over the, over a short period of time when we've been following him for several years and the movie has been dragging and dragging at this point and has so much more to go. But, but I think to your point, that's Kubrick using the narrator ironically. I don't think the narrator's making a joke. I think Kubrick's making a joke and that what the narrator's saying serves as a counterpoint to what we're experiencing. I agree, which is why, which is, I, I, and I get what you're, what you, I think I get what you're saying, but to me, that is Kubrick using the narrator mm-hmm. to service, to service mm-hmm. his, his own position. Like yeah. we're, we're aware that Kubrick is there in that moment. Mm-hmm. At least mm-hmm. I am. I, I, yeah. I took that moment to be very meta in the sense that I was aware I'm watching a movie and I'm aware 
to a degree, not necessarily a total, because it's impossible to know what Kubrick's actually thinking at any given moment, but I have a sense in that moment of what the director is doing here and what I'm what he wants me to be taking from this scene. In that moment, I, it, it's, it's clear and it's interesting. I, I could have used a little more irony, you know? I agree. Ken, did you say, did you say that that point was as he's courting Lady Linden? Is that when, when that line happens? Correct, yes. When he when he is courting uh, Lady Linden after they first met, it comes right after the, the poker game scene. And there's it, it, sh- <laughs> it shows them, uh, I think it's some kind of like a paddle boat or a rowboat kind of sailing around some pond and this is right before the intermission right right correct yes they are okay. his, his they, they are falling for one another her husband is still alive lord linden is still alive at that point um and it's it's just the narrators telling us how they've they start they start to spend so much time with each other and they very yeah. quickly fall for one another and that's what he's speeding up we don't he doesn't show us we don't care about how they fell in love but he's speeding that up for us well, he, t- he shows you how they fell in love, because at the poker game, there's about six or eight shot reverse shots of just Barry's face and her face and Barry's face and her face. And that was about when I started crying with boredom at the movie. I should say that I watched this movie in my basement, which is very dark and cool under a blanket. And it took me three sittings to get through it. And that was like that was the one spot that I and I, did, I identified as like where my eyelids got really, really, really heavy. But, oh, but thank you, narrator, for speeding up at that point. <laughs> but to, to, to what we were talking about earlier. The poker game scene is one of the most majestic candlelit scenes in the whole film. And that's where, honestly, my patience was tried. Honestly, like, I, I didn't, I don't think I actually found this movie as boring as TJ did. Uh, especially the p- part two. I actually quite like part two, personally. But uh, the end of part one was uh, a rough spell. A rough well, spell and it, it's, it's interesting that, like, if that is the, the really rough spell, that's the one where, like, what you should be expecting out of a you know 18th century romance that's that's what we're waiting for it's near the like midpoint climax of the movie and so you know the, the lush candles the operatic mu- not operatic the classical music all of that um almost serves to heighten the insincerity of the emotions that are being depicted yeah 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 i want to segue from talking about the narrator talking about fate and the role of fate in the narrative to something that i kind of flagged that I wanted to ask your guys' opinions on. So the narrator says... No, narrator talks about fate a decent amount. And, like, you know, as the Criterion booklet alluded, it's kind of just, like, the perspective of the narrator is just simply someone who knows what's happening and what will happen. And there's a bit of, like, a, a fatalism just to that device in general. But, you know, the narrator says, it it was not fate that Barry would long be an English soldier. And that's something that the narrator says. That's when he like kind of happens upon the two officers bathing and steals their clothes and steals their letters and then poses an English soldier. And then later on uh, in the second half, uh, the narrator says, you know, fate would determine that Barry would die poor, lonely and childless. And at the time, I believe the camera is on Barry's young son, Brian, when it says that. And so it's very intriguing that he says he'll die alone and childless when we're looking at his child moment. And obviously that's foretelling something bad happening to Brian that takes about 15 minutes for something bad to happen to Brian. And 
I think in the in the special features, uh, there was a quote from Kubrick on the Blu-ray. There's a quote from Kubrick about how like he liked having the narr you know not only does the narration save you from exposition and drops you right into a scene, but it also foretells certain twists and turns in the story so that the twists and turns feel inevitable rather than popping up out of nowhere. And it's kind of like the uh, the old Hitchcock quote about a bomb under the table. How like if you're told that there's a twist coming, it just kind of gives you like an in- impending disaster is its own is its own source of tension. So like when we see when Brian is physically on screen, when we hear the narrator say that Barry Lyndon dies childless, like that gives a again a pending sense of disaster about something bad's gonna happen to Brian soon, and it does. You know, he falls off a horse about ten minutes later and dies. TJ, what do you think about the fate stuff in the narration? I guess it was a little frustrating in the sense that again, I, I don't want to sound like one of these people that's like, but in the book it did this. Uh, because in the book, I think it actually handles it more interestingly. But again, by having it told in the first person point of view, um, it, it highlights uh, lying, and it highlights mm. our historical representation, our, our historical relationship between what happens as an event and what's being represented or what's being retold. So I'm gonna borrow here from Robert P. Fletcher, uh, "Proving a Thing While You Contradict It." This is his essay, and he says. Uh, About that scene where he, the duel at the beginning when he thinks he kills Quinn. What Barry doesn't tell us here is that Quinn has survived the duel because it's been fixed. We find out two chapters later. Of course, Barry Lyndon knows this as he narrates, but young Redmond Barry's heroism would be compromised if the story of the duel were rewritten at this point. So he carefully elides the development to keep his fiction of development intact. A little bit earlier, uh, Fletcher describes the novel as a story uh, that's a series of events linked by cause and effect or by fortune and luck that add up to a life. That's changed within the movie. The idea of, of something being fated suggests that uh, the cause and effects don't only in retrospect add up to a life, but that they were, in a sense, uh, predetermined, right? And thus, by having... If, if you have someone tell their own story, we don't create a narration of our understanding of our life until we tell it again later. You don't, you don't know, uh, that's the difference between story and narrative, right? We don't know that as you're going through it. Barry's able to do that in the novel uh, through, these, through, through being boisterous, uh, through being braggadocious, through lying. Um, in the film, that, that's missed because of the detached presence of the narrator, right? That he doesn't have an emotional stake in the presentation of what we're seeing. Can we talk a little bit about the cause and effect in the narrative? You kind of just alluded to it in the book a bit. I I think that, like, a a narrative is more satisfying if you can kind of, like, trace threads and, like, understand why events are happening. You know, know, if you can trace the cause and effect relationship, the narrative is more satisfying and and easier to follow. And, like, if I I kind of take a step back to see it in this, but it it is, like, I think a pretty satisfying cause and effect and kind of like a uh, tragic irony to some of the particularly what happens like Brian, for example. Let, let me trace real quick in part two, like, the things that lead to the other things. You know, Barry attacks Lord Bullingdon at the concert, which makes him a pariah. And because he's a pariah, it the narration kind of, like, then shifts to him trying to be a good father to Brian because he's clearly, like, a pariah for how he treats his stepson. So, it, you know, it shifts to how good he is to Brian. And... That's it. Almost like becomes his his spoiling Brian becomes like his weakness, and that's what leads to Brian's death because he wants to get his son a horse. He can't keep it a secret until his birthday, so then he goes off by himself and falls off the horse and dies. And then that leads to Lady Linden 
going crazy and trying to poison herself, which leads to Lord Bolingdon blaming Barry for the, you know, craziness of his mother, which leads to the great final duel in in the movie, which leads to, you know, Barrylin's demise. So, like, I don't know, like, the, the small escalation of his own faults leading to his demise, I think, is interesting, if you kind of trace that. What do you think, Ken? Well, well, I think the whole... The whole story, and the narrator alludes to this, the idea that Barry Lyndon is very good at achieving all of this, achieving his, his height and his success, becoming a British lord. And, but not keeping it. Right, he can't keep it. And the he irony, wealth, but can't keep wealth. And the irony in all that, the, the not tragic irony, but more of, I guess, the, the ironic criticism here, is the fact that he didn't really achieve anything. He's very good at having things happen to him. Just like the the aristocracy at the time, you're born into it. You're luck. You just luck out. Things happen to you. You're fortunate. The question is whether or not you can maintain that height of power or that height of, of financial success. And Barry cannot. He is he is not built for it at all. He just stumbles into a life that's fantastic and has absolutely no way, no skill, no actual ability to hold on to it. Well, his, his skill is his principallessness, you know, like, yeah, sure. I'll join the British army, but I'll ditch it as soon as I can. <laughs> and yeah, sure. I'll join the Prussian army, but I will abandon my mission the second that I can. And I'll just be a card shark and swindle these people out of their cards with this Chevalier fellow. Like he's just, he's unscrupulous and he is able to climb because of unscrupulousness. Cause he has no loyalty to anything. And wears two different military uniforms, neither of which is the country he's from. <laughs> just <laughs> fakes his way to marrying a lady, and it works. In the film, none of the other characters show any any significant scruples either. All of these other people living within the aristocracy, they're all just like him. They're just better, apparently, at keeping their money, or they were blessed with more of it. But like they all... The, the whole idea that first flame comes a pariah, yeah, because all of these people are surface level. It's all about how you're perceived. The king, thanking like in the lineup, they're all in line meeting King George the Third, and he he's just told that this guy has donated a great deal of money to the cause, the British cause in the Americas, and he's just like, great, maybe give some more and go fight yourself. It's like these people have no principles; they have no scruples. The Chevalier, one of the more interesting characters of the film not given a whole lot of screen time or enough of it. He's not, it's not a fully developed character. He's far more interesting, but he's a card shark. He's running around Europe, yeah. stealing people's money. He's cheating them out of their wealth. He's also dressed like a buffoon. He's like a He's like a, an operatic clown <laughs> with all of the heavy makeup and the giant wigs. And I mean, even Lord Linden, there's a, his, one of the best scenes in the movie for me, Lord Linden's just losing his shit and dying halfway through the yeah. film. That's one of the great little moments of the film where there's actual some ex actually some excitement and some emotion, some reaction from a character where they act out of sort, kind of like Barry does later. <laughs> he immediately brings about his own death. <laughs> Another example of Kubrick lampooning someone in power. Like at that point, Lord Linden is the powerful one and Barry's the little stinker trying to get power. So we are still on the side of Barry and we are lampooning the person in power. You know, and that eventually does shift, you know. It shifts actually immediately, because once Barry Lyndon becomes Lord Lyndon himself, once he marries Lady Lyndon, what's the very first shot? It's Barry and Lady Lyndon in the back of a carriage, and he blows smoke in her face like an asshole. And, like, from that moment on, we are no longer on his side for the rest of the movie. We're on 
whoever's the victim in a given scene. That's who side we're on. You know, Kubrick always sides with the victim. Ken, you mentioned the scene with uh, Lord Linden and how it, he kind of loses his shit, which I thought was pretty funny. And you, yes. you put it in the outline. Is, is is this a black comedy? So what, what, what do you think about that? The film starts. It's a fantastic opening, I must say. When I when it I started really when I started the film, the Great long shot, shot, the long shot mm-hmm. of the duel, the narration, it all it's all so perfect, and I was very excited about what was to come because there's. Well, it also like well, the the opening shot's like a, a, a timing joke with the narration. Like yes. you see two duelists in the background, and there's a nice like stone wall and fence in the foreground, and they both raise their guns, and the narrator says, "Uh, Barry's father lost his life in a duel." bang one of the guys falls over and you're like a duel over some horses and like the timing of the gunshot to the narration is a good joke it's funny it's there's an incredible dry wit from the opening in yes. the opening shot and it's promising it's got this kind of macabre humor and you're like okay i can i'm getting i'm ready to get into this 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 could be a lot of fun this could be somewhat closer to dr strangelove even depending on how much of the humor he wants to insert in the film and then basically the second scene is Barry playing hide the ribbon with his cousin, <laughs> whatever that means. And uh, I think that seems pretty funny too. And then it's not really funny the rest of the movie, I thought. Well, that's the problem. There's the, there's a total lack of consistent humor without throughout the film. We have individual yes. moments where there there's a promising there's there's a promising moment or a promising character. Like early on in the film, we get um, when he's escape when he's first escaping after what he believes was the murder of, of Quinn in the duel. He gets stopped by Captain Feeney and his son. Captain Feeney is the highway robbers. They are there. It's an interesting moment in the scene. It's an interest era in the film. They're interesting characters, and but it's the only time we ever see them. Despite this lingering moment at the end of that scene where you think, Oh, we're going to see Feeney again later, perhaps. No, no. And that's he, this whole film is filled with moments like that or characters like that. Again, Going back, Grogan, for example, is a, is a somewhat likable character. Mm. He's also yeah. not very principled. His scruples are fairly low, but he's likable. He seems to he's, he seems to have befriended Barry. He cares about Barry. Uh, the moment we re, we reteam with him after Barry has joined with the British Army, uh, Grogan's not in very long, much of the film after that. Spoiler alert: he gets killed. Uh, so he's not. We don't get much of him. Then we get the Chevalier. He's got an interesting appearance. He's got an interesting look. The fact that he's Irish means, okay, we, could, we should be able to more easily understand him or we can see Barry and him interacting. No, he's he's in the film on a surface level for a matter of, I don't know, a, a maybe a dozen minutes, scenes, yeah. if that. Yeah. And he's just gone. No explanation. Like, he married, Barry marries Larry, Lady Lyndon, and that's it, the Chevaliers in the past. I, I will say... You mentioned the Chevalier. I got to mention another scene that I thought was funny is when Barry is disguised as Chevalier to make his escape. When the Chevalier like leaves on the cover of Midnight, and then Barry dresses the Chevalier. But the way the scene starts, like I think you're just over Barry's shoulder, kind of, and like yes. so all you see is like Chevalier, someone in Chevalier garb with Chevalier hair, and then the camera reverses, and you see that it's actually Barry. <laughs> that reverse shot got me. I giggled. I thought that was pretty good. Yes, it's the, that's it's moments like that, but. When you're talking about a movie that's three hours long, three hours and five minutes, yeah, you're 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 starved for more scenes like that, yes. and they just don't come frequently enough, and they don't linger for as long. They're not by the time by the time you get into the second half, 
let's Lord Bullington is like little Lord Fauntleroy. He's an annoying, foppish, cartoonish little character. He's whiny. I don't mind him. He's bratty. Oh, I was so ready for like I don't I don't I care don't for Barry, him. but I'm like oh pox out all of these people in, in all of their houses. Just bring them all down. I hated the character. But his screeching whininess, like you could have played that for I think a more comedic effect. And instead I just found him grating. Every time he's in the movie. Did you know that, uh, so Leon Vitali played the teenage version of Lord Bullington in part two. Do you guys know what that actor's relationship to Kubrick was after this movie? I believe he was, he was like a, wasn't he an assistant director or something like that later on? He worked on like behind the scenes. He became Kubrick's personal assistant and he had some kind of credit on every movie Kubrick made after this, whether it be assistant something or he had various assistant titles, but he was Kubrick's personal assistant for the rest of his life. And now he he's still around, and now he does, like, film restorations and stuff like that for, for Kubrick's work. And, you know, approves, you know, the, the sound transfers and the picture transfers. And he's interviewed a lot in the Criterion Blu-ray. I thought that was interesting. I never never heard of him, but, you know, he looks and talks the same, even though now he's, he's like an old man and he's not a teenager anymore. But I thought that was, thought that was good. <laughs> hey, it's Josh, dropping in from the future. Or really from the present relative to you listening to this, but from the future relative to us talking about Barry Lyndon. A peek behind the curtain, Ken and TJ and I recorded this many, many months ago at this point, and uh, because we wanted to bank a bunch of episodes for scheduling purposes, and then we all got kind of busy, but uh, details aren't important. What's important is we just discussed Leon Vitale, who plays Lord Bullingdon and Barry Lyndon, and would later give up acting to be Stanley Kubrick's personal assistant for the rest of Kubrick's life. I just said in the episode that Leon Vitale is still around, and that was true at the time that we recorded, but he has since passed away at the age of 74. Like I said in the episode, watching Barry Lyndon was my first exposure to Leon Vitale. I've since learned more about him and learned that he was a pretty central figure to the production of Kubrick's movies in the back half of his career. His official title was assistant, but he really did anything and everything that Kubrick needed in pre and post production and on set. Um, there was a very, very well-received documentary about Leon Vitale that premiered at Cannes in 2017 called Film Worker, which is a reference to the many, many hats that Vitale wore in the course of his work for Kubrick. Um, and sometimes that included acting again. Uh, since the recording of the Barry Lyndon episode, I saw Eyes Wide Shut for the first time. And if you've seen that, Leon Vitale plays the super, super menacing leader of the masked guys at the orgy that confronts Tom Cruise. And he's super, super good in that role. So, you know, shout out to that performance. And then after Kubrick's death in 1999, Vitaly was the the unofficial keeper of Kubrick's legacy, overseeing restorations, hosting repertory screenings, doing interviews like he does on the Barry Lyndon Criterion Blu-ray and stuff like that. Uh, So if you enjoy Kubrick's work, particularly his later work, uh, you should know who Leon Vitale is. And even his earlier work before Vitale got involved with Kubrick is now more accessible and endures in the cultural consciousness in no small part due to the work Vitale did after Kubrick's death. So Leon Vitale passed away in August at the age of 74, and I didn't want us to mention him in the episode and not acknowledge his passing and not give him his proper due. So sorry for the interruption, but... I think it's worth it to shout out Leon Vitale. Okay, back to Barry Lyndon. TJ, do you think this movie's funny? I think there are attempts at humor, mostly coming from uh, ironic distance. I didn't laugh. I don't know if that's really what you're asking. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there are, there are ironic attempts at humor, but 
Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I didn't laugh. Sorry. It's just it's it's almost too cynical for its own good. It is it has no optimistic, and this is true of, of a lot of Kubrick's films. He doesn't have a whole lot of optimism in in humanity or in his characters and his people. They tend to be, if not necessarily as bland as Barry Lyndon, uh, they tend to be makers of their own their their own downfall and. Uh, they almost can't. They they never can get out of their own way. There's always a tragedy in some level to the humans. I mean, you could argue 2001 maybe is a slight exception, but then again, the most interesting or most compelling character, many might argue in the film, is Hal, not any of the actual human characters. In this film, very 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 cynical, very down on all of the characters and this whole world in which they live. I mean, the fact that even Barry Lyndon is not born into uh, aristocracy at all. Um, he's got some. He's got relatives who have some money, but he's not. They're not powerful. They're not lords or ladies. They're in Ireland. Uh, boy, when they get the opportunity, even his mother turns out to be somewhat Lady Macbeth-like. She turns out to be somewhat conniving, manipulative, uh, and she is not a lady uh, by birth. The only real, the only truly inoffensive character in this movie, I think, might be La- Lady Lyndon. Uh, again, Kubrick picking an American to play uh, a proper British lady, uh, Maria Berenson. She was a, an American supermodel at the time. Uh, she's not given a whole lot of lines. She doesn't have a whole lot of no. scenes where she's allowed to speak. It's mostly just acting with her face. And her uh, biggest scene is her throwing a Tommy Wiseau level like tantrum where she poisons herself and is kind of going crazy. She's attempting to put po- yeah, yeah yeah in her bedroom. And and that's about it. And you can what and kind it, of money, Barry? <laughs> <laughs> this this I'm tired of this world. There is there. By the way, is a scene we can talk more about this as we talk about other films. Where if we're going to be working our way more and more increasingly through all of these best picture nominees, there is your scene for an attempted uh, uh, acting nomination. That's it. That's Maria Berenson's. That is what Cooper gave her. Do with what you will, Maria. Good luck. Maybe maybe they'll recognize you. They didn't. Spoiler How many alert. takes do you think she did for that? How many takes do you think she cried in her room while poisoning herself? Um, I would say over under thirty. I don't know. We're getting we're getting closer to Shining. I, I'm going to guess it's not as bad as Shelley Duvall, but probably mm. probably greater than thirty. I mean, they shot this for three hundred days. Yeah, I'm sure. One of those days was her just like crawling around her room screaming. Yeah. TJ, anything else you want to cover in Barry Lyndon? You got a lot of research. What else? What else you want to cover? Well, I'm going to jump into some some things that that Ken said. I, I agree with you. I think part of it is the point. Here's a story of a man whose identity is a lack of identity, um, who wears multiple hats, none of which ever fit. And I think again that goes back to this business of pretense. Uh, something from the this is the beginning of the book. If you don't mind me quoting again, um, but you it. talked about him. Not really being born into nobility, which is correct, but listen to how the book begins. First of all, uh, trigger warning for blatant misogyny, even though I think it's it's done ironically. Since the days of Adam, there's been hardly a mischief done in this world, but a woman has been at the bottom of it. Ever since ours was a family, and that must be very near Adam's time, so old, noble, and illustrious are the berries, as everybody knows. Women have played a mighty part with the destinies of our race. I presume that there is no gentleman in Europe that has not heard of the House of Barry, of Barry Oak, of the Kingdom of Ireland. 
than which there is not a more famous name. Dot, 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 dot. I despise heartily the claims of some pretenders to high birth who have no more genealogy than the lackey who cleans my boots, and though I laugh to utter scorn the boasting of many of my countrymen who are all for descending from kings of Ireland and talk of a domain no bigger than would feed a pig as if it were a principality, yet truth compels me to assert that my family was the noblest of the Ireland, and perhaps of the universal world. While their possessions now insignificant and torn from us by war, by treachery, by the loss of time, by ancestral extravagance, by adhesion to the old faith in the monarch, were formerly prodigious and embraced many counties at a time when Ireland was vastly more prosperous than now. I would assume the Irish crown over my coat of arms, but that there are so many silly pretenders to that distinction who bear it and render it common. TJ, what was, what am I gleaning from that passage? Ken was talking about, you know, kind of the way in which he's not fitting into something and the way in which he didn't have this sort of noble birth, right? Um, Nothing really to recommend him at the beginning. And I guess I'm just kind of beating the same point that within the novel, it's not really fate. I mean, he's, he's trying to blame everything outside of his own agency and it's not necessarily fate so much as like misfortune or fortune that befalls him that creates a sort of character by lack of there being a character and um within ryan o'neill's performance and the way the character is written we're missing that intense sense of being braggadocious that intense sense of entitlement that intense sense of being strongly tethered to a national history, but also that lies that construct one's national past at the same time. I also just think it's a really fascinating beginning to uh, what what is a much more humorous and I think enjoyable character um, in this iteration. One thing I wanted to cover, and TJ, if you have more research, I'd love to hear more. But before before this escapes my mind, something that was pointed out by uh, film historian Michel Simon on uh, the Criterion Blu-ray. Apparently he's a Kubrick expert. He wrote a book on him in, in the 80s. He pointed out what the 18th century means to Kubrick, which I thought was interesting, in that in Paths of Glory, one part takes place in the trenches, which is like barbarism, but the generals live in 18, in an 18th century castle. So there's like a dichotomy there of like violence, but also like a luxuriousness, right? And in Lolita, which I've not seen, James Mason shoots Peter Sellers through an 18th century painting and the bullet goes through the cheek of the portrait. And then obviously in 2001, the ending of that movie takes place in a Louis XVI bedroom furnished like a pre-revolutionary period. And what, uh, you know, Michel Simon points out is like, is that that dichotomy I just referenced with Passive Glory? You know, the, the, uh, you know, the 18th century is the enlightenment and Voltaire in a period where science and technology are developing in a period where people think humanity has come to an apex you know, Mozart and great paintings, and this great art. But it's also, you know, psychoanalysis of Sigmund Freud analyzing how passions submerge the intellect and how the beast is always lurking, ready to pounce, and no one is protected from chaos. So it is like, you know, a century of rationality that ends in carnage with the French Revolution. So it is that a dichotomy of, like, violence, but also high culture, so to speak. And you kind of get that in Barry Lyndon two times, actually. It's, and it's the two handheld moments, the, the fist fight in the British camp, and then when he attacks Lord Bullingdon at the concert. The first scene begins with, like, a wide shot of a static camera of, like, the British army marching. It's very stately and, you know, again, like, stationary camera, and there's there's music, and it's, it's stately. And then five minutes later, it's a handheld camera and two shirtless guys beating the crap out of each other, you know? 
contrasting what we just saw. And then same with the concert. Like the the scene where he beats Lord Bullington opens with a concert, which is high culture and high art and a a stationary camera. And then within five seconds, it's a handheld camera and just chaos and barbarism as he's attacking a teenager, you know? Well, there's also just like a damning contradiction between... I keep using this phrase, but whatever, like stately pretense and the barbarism of what they're doing. When you see them like dressed to the nines, marching in line and you're like, we can't shoot until we get this far, you know? So there's like the music, the, the well choreographed um, tracking shot that goes with it. And then all of these people just kind of like dropping and then you keep going, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And what's interesting is that that first it's where spoiler alert, Grogan, gets killed um the the first shot of that sequence uh, maybe first one of the early shots is a wide shot long distance uh with such a long focal length on the lens that you're watching people march for a while towards you but they look like they're just kind of doing this like they're not they're not progressing Staying in place right you know moving moving so hard to to just stay in place well the two things or actually i guess three things about that one i think that sequence that the the british battle sequence is a good example of what we we're just talking about the you know dichotomy of high culture and high art versus barbarism but it's also one the only example that i can think of in a, in a major movie of like that era of military strategy how they just like walk in a line and shoot when they get close and like yeah guys kind of fall and die as they're marching but they just keep marching forward anyway which I thought was cool because, you know, it's just unique. I've never seen that kind of battle in a movie before. And also, like, I, th- I thought some of the camera work was, like, kind of a test run for uh, Full Metal Jacket. The way the camera kind of stakes about knee level behind the soldiers as they march forward. Um, and we're, like, following along with them, like, a little below them, a little behind them. Like, he used that in Full Metal Jacket as they approach burned out buildings. And, you know, I always like seeing a director's later work appear in their early work. Yeah. And there's, there's uh, visual recurrences from Paths of Glory as well. Which I've not seen, but that makes sense. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody got anything else on Barry Lyndon you want to bring up before I close this out and talk about this as a Best Picture nominee? Can we talk a little bit about anachronism? The floor is yours. This goes to what I was bitching about earlier about um, the the slavish adherence to realism. And yet there's a, there's a couple instances in which this is deliberately broken. And the, the main one is through the use of music. Okay, so... Uh, Dominic Lash tells us that there's basically like three different types of music used in the film. First, there's music from the time depicted, the mid-18th century, performed more or less non-anachronistically. Second, there's music written at the time, but arranged and performed in ways that only developed after the period shown, even in some cases after the mid-19th century, which is the period when Thackeray's novel, on which the film is based, was written. And thirdly, there was music which was written after the time depicted. So, sonically, there's three eras represented within it, which, uh, perhaps unintentionally, but grafts onto that there's, there's three centuries that are, are leveling the narration as well. The 18th century is uh, where things are taking place. The 19th century is where Thackeray's novel's written. The 20th century is where Kubrick's film comes about. And so what anachronisms do typically is they foreground the idea that the story is constructed at a later time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, movies, uh, as a part of it, having us um, suspend our disbelief, also operate under the lie that like you're watching something. Have Novels work that way too. They're in this kind of eternal present a lot of the time, right? Um, but then what, what he's arguing in here is that Barry Lyndon 
he says, quote, reveals that our only access to history is via representation. He, he boils it down basically to uh, producing effects of dramatic irony that prompts us to question the very existence of an authentic core that is separable from the acts of public performance. Um, the paintings were made to materialize history, but then the film itself, um, along with its anachronistic music, destabilizes that historical core. So part of what frustrates me again about what, what I described as like the slavish adherence to realist representations of history is that the, the, the film underscores its own authority in doing that by bringing in aesthetic anachronisms and and suggest almost that there was no like base reality of something that actually happened which of course is true right this whole thing is fiction and thackeray himself was very uh suspect of the power of fiction that's why this novel while not a very good novel is is notable for being one of the first novels in the english language to be a fake autobiography you know don quixote did it in spanish way ahead right. you know 200 years before but in english it was one of the first ones to work in that genre of autobiography but be written by someone who doesn't exist you know and and on top of that he's one that we we talked about earlier that is a stinker and a liar. So I, I, I thought that was just kind of an interesting um, approach to the different narrative layers of the film that don't seem to be totally working in symphony for me. Um, TJ, did you like this? Um, can you <laughs> define that question? It's a simple question, Norm. A baby could answer it. Did you did you did you like Barry Lyndon or no? Da- <laughs> Does that does that matter? Uh, well, why are you asking? I'm just making conversation, man. No, no, no if, I, if I understand. But do I that think, for me. No, 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 I understand. But I think I think the fact that we, we've been talking about this for 80 minutes and you can't tell shows that you're not listening. It sounds like you, you didn't. Care. How about you just tell me you didn't like it? Uh, the fact that we've been talking about it for 80 minutes and you can't tell reveals my deeply ambivalent feelings about the movie. Um, I find it very frustrating. Um, I find it pretentious um i find it sorry but i hate this word because this is such a stupid but overrated um and yet i read the novel five essays and watched background features on it um and and there's just a thing this is when you're an academic of like the more time you spend with something the more it's just kind of like you have a love-hate relationship with well, it. Well, you're, you're, because there's a part of you subconsciously that's trying to convince yourself that you're, <laughs> all of this work you're putting into watching it and learning about it isn't being wasted on something that you don't actually like. <laughs> well, okay, so if we're, if we're talking about like in terms of like aesthetic enjoyment, you know, no, I, no, I don't like it. Um, but again, we've been talking about this movie for 80 minutes, so I find it hard to be dismissive of it. Oh, I think the film is interesting. But if if you don't mind, Josh, I'll go off of that. I don't like this film. I okay. I made I, I cannot emphasize enough how much that I would not want to voluntarily watch this again. Uh, really? That that's, wow. that said, I find it interesting. I'm not saying I wouldn't watch it again, but I wouldn't want to. It would have to be in a certain certain setting. It's something TJ just mentioned. He called it overrated, and while that. That term might be a bit cliched or overused itself. It's also an incredibly empty and stupid thing to say. I think Just in this, throwing it out there. <laughs> in the case of Barry Lyndon, we've got a film that, as we talked about in the very beginning of the discussion, is a film that maybe not a lot of people in the general populace have seen, but of those who have sought it out and seen it, 
they tend to overwhelmingly come out on the backside being at least highly appreciative of it, or at least they focus most of their discussion and most of their reaction on the fact that, well, I really, really was impressed by what Kubrick was able to do here. And I think that simplifies the film and it simplifies in a way our kind of right as viewers and our right as people, as, as just people to think freely, watch and react to a film. There's clearly a lot to talk about in this film, but if you break it down, it comes back to the fact that our gut reaction is probably still the same. It's really long and laborious. Well, it's a it's a pretentious film about pretension. It's a frivolous film about frivolity. Um, it's a beautiful film about the artifice of beauty. And, and so I don't really know what to do with that, you know? It's like, talking about anachronisms, I immediately thought of Baz Luhrmann. It's like... A Baz Luhrmann film, in particular The Great Gatsby. It's a film that is trying to almost criticize, mock, or bring to the attention that which it's the film itself suffers from. It's it's a film about all of the things and an attempted criticism of many aspects of that the film itself kind of falls victim to. It's a film that looks great and is surface level impressive to watch. But there's not a whole lot below the surface, I don't think, ultimately. At least that's interesting or that can hold your attention the way Kubrick probably would have preferred it do. I agree with what you guys are saying. Um, I'll I'll say that I I watched it over three sittings and struggled to get through parts of it. Um, And (laughs) I mentioned earlier that, like, I kind of searched for the movie on Twitter to see what people are saying about it. And, like, the consensus was, I wish I could see this on the big screen. There were a few people who said that, like... Barry Lyndon is a comfort movie for them because they put it on as they fall asleep. And I'm like, mm. I'm not sure that's really a ringing endorsement of the movie. But, like, I could also see how this would be a good movie for that to kind of, like, just lull you to sleep, which, <laughs> again, not sure it's an endorsement, but, you know, it's something. But I will say that uh, watching the special features in the Blu-ray and even talking to you guys about it, uh, I think I like it more now than I did when I when the credits first rolled when I when I watched it. Um, and I think I like it more than you two seem to like it. Certainly more than Ken, because Ken sounds like he actively dislikes it. I don't. I don't hate it. To be clear, it's not like I. I oh, I, I could not stand this film. I find it interesting. It's just in the end, I. I can't bring myself to honestly recommend this to anyone or everyone. Yeah, run out and see Barry Lyndon. So I wanted to ask you guys because the three of us have seen a lot of best picture, basically every best picture nominee of the last fifteen years, probably collectively. Yeah. And 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 then some maybe. Uh, how do you think this this was nominated for best picture? How do you think this stacks up against like either modern best picture nominees or historical best picture nominees? How does this stack up? TJ, what do you think? Do you mean in terms of quality or like? Yeah, in terms of what you think of it. Uh, it's a lot more expert and complex than a lot of films that are now nominated and frequently win that award. Hmm. Would you rather have Barry and Lyndon be nominated for best picture than say, I don't know, uh, the favorite? You know, The Favorite's a movie I thought about a lot as I was watching this. One of my notes says, feels like The Favorite. Um, <laughs> do I have to pick between, as Jonah Hill says in Moneyball, are those my only two options? What's What What, what would you think this is better than than a recent movie that's not for Best Picture that you think is worse than Barry Lyndon? Uh, don't Look Up. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. That's I mean, that's I think I think we agree that's one of the worst movies not for Best Picture in the last decade, I imagine. Ken, what do you think? How does this stack up against the Best Picture nominees that you've, you've seen? Is this... It, it, I, lower 50 upper 50 like what are you thinking 
I haven't thought specifically in comparing it to all of all of the films over the last 10 or 15 years. I've been putting it kind of in the context of the times if you had a film where a director or a filmmaker was trying to do something similar. Like, as I mentioned earlier, this film is very cynical, and I feel like that is incredibly appropriate for the time period in which it was being made and released. I mean, when it when they start production on this film, at least in the States, for example, you're dealing with Watergate. And there's this heavy distrust throughout not only the U.S., but around the world, or at least the Western world. you got Vietnam going on, and you've got this kind of political upheaval all over the place. And there is a certain level of distrust in institutions, increased vocalization of distrust and, and vocal frustrations with the wealthy and those in power. And this is a movie that is very cynical and it is filled with frivolous people with lots of money and lots of time who have power. And this person who's just kind of stumbling through, uh, stumbling through life, having things happen to him and not being able to do much with it, either good or bad, really. He's just kind of existing and not all that likable. Films like that today, like, I'm not sure how they land because increasingly we're seeing people appreciate escapism and a film like this. I'm not sure it gets nominated particularly in the last few years, because when I think about this film and again, the fact that some people might perceive as being boring, uh, I, I can't help but think of films like Roma. I think of films like cold war or films of films like, um, uh, drive my car this past year where, People might say that about it, but I don't feel that when watching them. And I don't, I don't find them to be difficult to watch. I don't find them difficult to attach any kind of uh, relation to or, or meaningful kind of interest in. Barry Lyndon just loses me. And so I'm not yeah. sure that it would today get over that hump. It didn't do well at the box office. Critics, even critics at the time were mixed. You can look, Roger Ebert really liked it. But other like Pauline Kael, both liked it. Pauline Kael hated it. So at the time, there was a deep divide among critics even about this film. I'm not sure that the Academy is going to pick it up, lift it and carry it across the the finish line, except the one exception to that is it's got Kubrick. And at this time, the 1970s, he is an auteur filmmaker who's coming. I mean, he is he's starting to become one of the the most respected. Um, he was more controversial. He's, he's off, yes, Strange Love, two thousand one, and Clockwork Orange. He, while while there's a, still plenty of people who maybe run. at that time don't love those films, he's certainly being appreciated as a filmmaker. And people making movies in the seventies, they would kill to be working with Kubrick. So that certainly helps him. And if you've got an equivalent filmmaker today, that might help them. I'm not sure it gets a Best Picture nomination. If we're talking 1975, there are only five nominees. Remember, today there's ten. That might help it. Um, but if there were only five again today, I think this might be one of those, yeah, we'll give it an art direction, maybe even director. I'm not sure it gets picture. So that was my last question is, does this movie get nominated for Best Picture if it's not written and directed by Stanley Kubrick? TJ? Well, if it wasn't written and directed by Stanley Kubrick, it'd be a different movie. Can you can you just address my question as I'm asking it? <laughs> well, can you not be so argumentative? <laughs> well, no, I, I reject your question, okay? I am shutting your butt down. <laughs> Ken. Had this not been written and directed by Stanley Kubrick, would this have been nominated for Best Picture? As it exists. As it exists. So if Kubrick had made the film, but his name's not attached to the credits, and in 1975 people go to watch this not knowing that, ah, I 
I don't think so, personally. I say no way. I don't think so. I say so. no way. Absolutely not. Because and I, I think that's applicable today, too. Because it's... I agree. Yes. Look at the crop. The the, 70, the 75 crop right. movies. And, like, there's no way this gets in without seeing the Kubrick same one, I think, personally. And I liked it. I liked it more than you guys did. But I still say mm, no. You don't know whether I liked it or not, because I refuse to answer that question. <laughs> yeah, you refuse to answer any question, even though this is a conversation podcast. But, you're, you know, just... Reading from your notes and not... I think I had plenty to add. I think I had plenty to add. Any final thoughts, TJ, besides not answering my questions? By final thoughts, do you mean... (laughs) That was a a joke. Uh, No, I don't think so. Um, I'm glad I watched it again because my uh, memory of it from, honestly, about 10 years ago was... Um, Mm. And at least I have a much more complicated... Um, something to say about it, then... So... Yeah. Ken, final thoughts? It's just so... You have to push yourself to get through it. And that turns me off, and it frustrates me. So this film disappoints me in the sense that, unlike a lot of of other... Almost all of Kubrick's other movies that I've seen, I'll admit, I'm missing a couple here and there. But between, between basically Spartacus and Eyes Wide Shut... Uh, this is the one that stands out for being, uh, I think, most surprising for me exactly because I think it's missing something special that Kubrick's other movies have. The the fact that they can kind of keep your attention and provoke you in ways that force you to leave the theater pleased with the time you spent with it, this just doesn't do it. it I'm, I'm watching the clock. I'm pausing this film far too often in trying to get through it and it leaves a bitter taste in my mouth which frustrates me pretty good first hour pretty slow second hour and i, I actually like the third hour quite a bit so that's my that's my take I'm ranking the hours three then one then two so that's been barry linden serious film people on barry linden uh thanks for listening join us again next time when we talk about what dog day afternoon dog day afternoon yeah whatever else was nominated for best Pick. attica attica <laughs> tune in then <laughs>